too. Good thing I wasn't singing loud. It was on already before that. <laughs> My one defense. But um, as, as Tony mentioned, there's um, a couple of us leaders and some of us, uh, the serving members of our church, are um, going to be leaving today and going to uh, Acts 29 West Conference. And um, Acts 29 is a global network of churches that um, our body of churches uh our body is a part of, and so we're going to be going to the conference and um, hopefully uh, learning some things, connecting with some other churches, and just gaining a lot of information. What I ask of you guys is just to pray for us during this time. Pray for us during the trip for safety of our travels. Pray for us to um, go there and strip ourselves of what we think we know and just be um, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and taught and learn some things and to translate those things that we can bring back and share with you guys and uh, share with our family. Um, this morning, we're going to be continuing in um, Jesus in all of Scripture. And what we're looking at is we got 66 books of the Bible centered around one message, the message of Jesus Christ. So um, let's start off in prayer this morning. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, and um, we, come, we come to you with humble hearts, Lord. We come to you seeking your guidance and your direction, not on our own merit or understanding, Lord. We ask that the Holy Spirit be uh, in our lives right now, the Holy Spirit be in this place and filling us and showing us what your word speaks, showing us the truth that your word speaks, showing us and guiding us closer to Jesus. As we go through today's message, Lord, I just uh, I strike away the enemy in any type of distraction he may be uh, trying to bring into this place, any type of um, tactic that he may have to pull us away from your word and trying to pull your people away from the cross. As for you to um, convict us where conviction is needed, I ask you to uh, give us life and growth in the areas where we need life and growth. And we thank you for these things in advance because we know in the precious name of Jesus that all these things are possible. So if you guys want to join me in turning your Bibles today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. And we're just going to kind of camp out in verses 1 through 7. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. I'll give you a minute to turn there. It'll be up on the screen, but I urge you to, uh, to get to know your Bible if, if you don't know where that's at. It's uh, right at the beginning of the Old Testament. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, there'll be one around you. That's, that's our gift for you. We always want you to have that. Chapter 17, starting in verse 1. All of the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, saying, Give us water. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for, there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the 
I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, and in the sight of the elders of Israel, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's God's word. Let me get a drink here. So when I read this and I got to thinking about this passage, I, I got a, a, a picture in my mind, and I wanted to kind of share that with you guys. Um, have any of you ever had to go on a shopping trip through Walmart, and you had to take your small child along with you? <laughs> so you go, and you head into Walmart, and say you park on the left side of the store, and you enter the store, and you go into the grocery aisle first. And that's where you're going to start. And you're going to make your way through Walmart. And you start out in there getting some groceries, but you got your little one there. And so you grab a couple of your kid's favorite meals. You grab a couple of your kid's favorite snacks. Maybe just some treats that they really enjoy. And then you move on to the next section. And if it's like this time of year, is like now, where it's starting to get cold and winter is setting in, and you're heading through the clothing aisle, you think maybe they need some new gloves or a new beanie, or some boots. Winter is coming. And then as you're moving on, you say, you know what, I, um, I think I'm going to get them some new sheets or some bedding. And then you move on to the hygiene stuff, and you, you get them their favorite bubble bath or their favorite toothpaste, all of the things that the kid needs and some of the things that you know the child wants. And then the inevitable happens. You come around the corner, and there's the toy section. You come around the corner, and there is some large display of some ridiculously priced, silly toy. And everything goes downhill from there. The child requests it. Can I have that toy? i got to have that toy. Mom, Dad, please, i got to have that toy. And you're sitting there getting ready to formulate an answer. And before you could even answer, the meltdown of the century happens. But I gotta have it. You don't love me. You never buy me anything. I just need this one set of Legos. Please, come on. I, I, I promise I'll do good and I need it. And, and they're begging and screaming for this ridiculously priced toy. At that moment, all the 297 toys they have at home in their room are completely forgotten about. You never buy them anything. The 63 items in the shopping cart that are for them at that, in that trip or forgotten about, you never buy them nothing. Because they see this one thing and they feel they need it and they throw this huge fit. This is kind of what we're seeing at this point through this story in scripture. They're not in Walmart, they're in the wilderness and they're wandering through the desert, but oh, how short is their memory. Um, to kind of bring us up to speed with where we're at here, what we have is we have the Israelites, and they're God's chosen people. They're the, answer to the, uh, they're the answer to the promise that God gave Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. And what had happened to the Israelites is they became enslaved in Egypt. So God called upon Moses, and he told them, go. Go into Egypt and set them free. So Moses goes in, and he goes he approaches Pharaoh, and he, he, he requests for them to set free, and um, he's denied. So at that point, God kind of takes matters into his own hands, and he frees them. The book of Exodus, it, it portrays Moses as a God-ordained redeemer. 
He's taking the people from captivity and leading them to safety. Um, He's a type of Messiah, a precursor of the one who is to come, who is Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus would serve in three ways. One, he would serve as a prophet, communicating God's word to the people. Two, he would serve as a priest, making it possible for humankind to worship God rightly. And three, as a king, leading the people from slavery into safety. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing Moses leading the Israelites into safety. Now we're going to jump back and we're going to go back into that passage we read. We're going to kind of break it down verse by verse and just unpack those seven verses and see what we have here. So if you pull up verse 1 for me, Nick. Verse 1, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So what we see here is um, they're moving on. They're moving on from the... uh, from the desert of, of sin, which is in the Sinai Desert. And they're not moving on based on Moses' own thoughts, Moses' own plan, Moses' own idea. We see there that it says, um, according to the commandment of the Lord. So he's, he's guided by the Lord, and he's told to guide them out of that area. So they come to a place called Rephidim, and they camp there. And when they camp there, we see that there's no water. Now, Rephidim means rest or rest area. So they come to this place, and they come to this place, and as they're approaching, I can picture um, conversations going on. They're tired. They've been wandering in the, in the wilderness. Now they're in the, in the Sinai Desert, and they're coming to this place, and like, when are we going to stop? When are we going to take a break? We're tired. Our children are tired. Our families are tired. And he, Moses, I picture him instructing them, we're going to stop at Rephidim and camp. And that's probably music to their ears at that point. We're going to stop at rest, at rest area. Now, I want you to picture um, you taking a road trip, driving across country, and you're in the hot part of the country, and it's August or July, and it's hot, and you've been on the road for hours, and you see that blue sign on the freeway, rest area ahead. You're like, thank goodness, I I need a rest. But you stop, and you pull in, and you go there, and maybe you're going to fill up a bottle of water. Maybe you really got to pee. You go up, and you go to the rest area, and it's locked. It's locked. You can't get in. You can't seek any rest. You can't seek any respite. There's no restoration because the door is locked. That's what they're experiencing at this point. They show up to Rephidim, and there's no water there for them to drink. I'm old school. I like to just write my notes in a notebook. I can't. I tried the tablet and stuff. I'm like, nope. So now we'll go on to verse 2. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me, and why do you test the Lord? It's here at this point that we see the complaining begin. Give us water to drink. They've stopped. They're seeking rest. 
and there is none. And Moses responds with, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses shows them at this point that he is being a faithful servant. He is leading them upon the direction of God. So he's saying, you may be complaining to me, but why are you testing him? And it's at that point that um, one of the most driving forces of human nature kicks in. It's at that point for the Israelites that self-preservation kicks in. Self-preservation, when we have the need or we feel that we have the need for something, especially something like water, we know we die without water, right? A couple days without water, desperate times calling desperate measures, and that self-preservation kicks in. When that self-preservation kicks in, we change. When it seems like our back's against the wall and you picture an animal trapped in a corner, when we feel that we're trapped against the wall and that self-preservation kicks in, we change. We forget all the things that we've experienced. We sometimes tend to put our beliefs to the side to preserve ourselves in that moment. We become different people. We act in ways that we, we may not act when things are going smoothly. Then we go on to verse 3. It says, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Think about this for a minute. They're saying, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? They're complaining to Moses at this point and at this time, like he took them out of this upper-class, ritzy neighborhood where they had it all and everything was fine and dandy. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were slaved. They were tortured. They were commanded to do anything. But they're like, why'd you take us out of that? The self-preservation is kicked in to this point because they're so thirsty and it's changing all of uh, their mindset and it's changing who they are to where they're actually wishing they were back in Egypt as slaves for a moment. And they're saying, you brought us up out of Egypt just to kill us and our children and our livestock? I picture Moses with, like, with a bit of frustration. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I took you out of slavery. I, I've dragged all two million of you through the desert. We've went through all of these obstacles, and we've encountered all of these things, all of these different miracles God has done for us to keep us alive to this point and provide for us just to bring you up here and let you die of thirst. <laughs> Their self-preservation has set in, and they've changed who they are. Verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. It could have been so easy at that point in this whole situation for Moses to just let that frustration sit in, to throw his hands in the air and to say, You know what? I give up. He's not trying to decide what he should do. He's not trying to figure out on his own the best route, the best way, the best um, way to go about dealing with these people. He cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord because we're, we're only human. 
Frustration happens. Things set in. We react how we shouldn't sometimes. But he leans on the Lord in this time, and he cries out to them, what should I do? One of the things I want to kind of highlight here and kind of make sure we understand when when we're reading this and seeing this scripture is one of the true signs of growth is how we react when things aren't going in our favor. How do we react to our beliefs and who we are when the bottom seems to fall out of our lives? Now, I keep drinking water because I'm parched, but I'm pretty sure none of us in here are at the point where we're dying of thirst. Or if we don't get a bottle of water, Nick's just going to fall over into the aisle or something. That's not our situation at this time in our lives. But our cry for water could sound like, really, God, my job? Really, God, cancer? Diabetes? I got in a crash. That's my only vehicle. My furnace. (laughs) Whatever it is, we're crying out for something. We encounter things in our lives when our self-preservation or our need for self-preservation sits in. And like I said, the true sign of human growth is not how we react when things are going well, but how we react when the bottom has fallen out of our lives. We're going to go five through seven towards the end. Okay, Nick? And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Something very interesting in this is, at this point, Moses is considered the lawgiver, the deliverer, the one who redeemed and set the people free from the bondage they were in. Yet, at this moment in time, In this moment in self-preservation, they wanted to kill him. Does this sound like any other story that you guys know? Jesus Christ was placed in this earth to be the deliverer of his people. And it says in the New Testament, he was set among his people, yet his people did not receive him. They wanted to kill him. He came, and the gospel he was sharing was challenging everything they knew in their need for control and leadership at that time set in their self-preservation where they were ready to kill him. We see Jesus in Moses in this scripture. We see that similarity I just spoke of, of being the deliverer there to set your people free. And having to pay with his life for it. But we don't just see Jesus and Moses in this scripture. We also see him in the water. The rock was struck and water came out of it so the people could live. 
In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus responds to a request for water by saying, He can provide a water that will never leave you thirsty again, a living water. We don't just see Jesus in the water, but the source of the water as well. In the New Testament, he is known as the rock upon which the church would be built, the chief cornerstone. Remember that illustration I, I shared at the beginning about the child in Walmart going through, and, and you have met all of their needs. You got them their favorite snacks. You got them some gloves and stuff to keep them warm. You've gotten them bedding and bubble baths and all of these things. But when you got to the next place, the toy section, they wanted more. They threw a fit and freaked out for more. This is what we're seeing right here. If you guys aren't familiar with um, all of the things that happened in the book of Exodus, the people, the Israelites at this point, they're throwing a fit. Even though they had been through each section of the store or the wilderness, and God had provided time and time again. I'm going to read a few passages here. Um, it was kind of cool that we were doing this Jesus and all of Scripture. Um, I had gotten this Bible a little while back called the Jesus Bible, and it has um, all the different areas in here, and it has some side notes about um, Jesus in Scripture and points out different things. And there was one for each of these miracles and these things God had done for his people at the time, and it points out Christ in those. So I'm going to share those with you guys. So I'll be reading um, this little portion that takes place in Exodus 13, the light. As the darkness of the desert made travel virtually impossible, the movement of thousands of people across the rugged terrain was not easy in the day, much less at night. Light was a practical necessity for survival in the wilderness. Without it, people would be left to stumble in the darkness, face the constant fear of unforeseen attacks by their enemies, and struggle to accomplish the basic actions necessary for living in a harsh land. Once again, God provided for his people in a unique way. Rather than asking for the people to create light themselves, he provided a light for them in the, in the form of a pillar of fire. Often a mark of judgment, here the fire of God was a means of provision. Even more, the fire embodied the presence of God among his people. The Israelites simply looked out to the night, saw the pillar of fire, and reminded that God was there and, God, and they were God's people. He had broken into the darkness of human history and chosen to them to be his. Even in the wilderness, they were reminded that God had worked mighty deeds of deliverance on their behalf and was leading them to the land of promise. God's very being is characterized by light. The apostle John wrote, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. His holiness is described as a perfect light without the darkness of sin. Jesus, as the perfect son of God, was sent on a mission to a dark world. His birth was the embodiment of God's light. He came into a sin-darkened world and overcame the darkness by all his consuming light. He lights the path by which all those who know him can follow him. God's children no longer have to cower in darkness. They come into the light where they will discover newfound safety, peace, and joy. In fact, the central mark of God's people is that they love the light. 
Sin festers and grows in the darkness. So those who long to obey God renounce the darkness and drag their sin into the light of God's grace. They find fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. In God's light, sin is hated, repentance is ongoing, and holiness is pursued. That was the first time that we've seen God providing for these people. His next provision happens in Exodus chapter 14, the path of deliverance. Moses' command to not be afraid must have sounded foolish. As the Israelites watched as Pharaoh and his army drew near, yet the Lord promised to provide salvation by accomplishing a deed so vast, so incredible, so unheard of that only God can do it. The people, they stood on the brink of the Red Sea, unable to cross. Without the sa- with the sound of 600 chariots barreling down upon them, at best, they would be hauled off to return to slavery in Egypt where they'd be forced to work even harder than before. At worst, they'd be killed for their insurrection. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart proved that the latter was more likely the outcome. But God promised, however, that he would provide a way of escape. The people must simply trust him. After commanding Moses to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand, God told him to divide the water and instructed the people to walk forward in God's path of deliverance. The vast Red Sea obeyed the command of the Lord and formed a wall of water on either side of the Israelites, allowing them to walk forward on dry ground and safely arriving on the other bank. The nation of God turned around to watch the waters consume the army of Pharaoh. These types of scenes are all too common for the people of God. Their sin places them in a situation where unless God acts and delivers them, they'll be crushed and consumed. The angelic announcement of the night of Jesus' birth demonstrated they had come to deliver his people. Fear not, the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy for all of the people. This good news follows a similar blueprint as God's deliverance of his people at the Red Sea. Jesus' work provides a singular way of deliverance. He is, in fact, the only way in which a sinful mankind can be delivered from the plight of sin. This path is not easy. However, it's a narrow path, and only those who trust God and spurn the ways of this world will be led to safety. Like Israel before, the church today must trust that God will deliver his people, but only through the path that is made by Christ. So we've had them stumbling in the dark. We've had God provide a light. We've had them stuck at the edge of the Red Sea, ready to be killed by Pharaoh's army, and God delivered them again. But oh, the self-preservation sets in. Because now, in chapter 16, they're hungry. Hangry. They're hangry. I know about that. <laughs> God fed his people from bread, with bread from heaven. This act of kindness was magnified by the fact that God's people seemed to be filled with unending complaints against God and the leaders he had appointed. They foolishly longed for the days of slavery in Egypt where they would be recalled eating pots of meat and all the food they wanted. Now they feared they would starve in the wilderness. Only one chapter removed from the miraculous deliverance of the Red Street and their, and their song of victory, the people now blame God and mourn their seemingly dire circumstances. 
God faithfully feeds his faithless children. His motive for providing food is clear. God wanted his people to see the glory and remember that he was working on their behalf. Each day, they awakened to fresh evidence of God's generosity. And this blessing was specific. Not just the nation of Israel as a whole, but also to each of the families of the people of God. Jesus compared his mission on earth to the provision of manna in the desert. After demonstrating his miraculous power by feeding 5,000 on a hillside and walking on water, he describes himself as the bread of life in John chapter 6. Those who know him discover a source of nourishment far far greater than any meal can provide. Jesus satisfies the craving of all those longing for a source of satisfaction in life and in the hope of life to come. Like manna in the wilderness, Jesus provides food for a hungry soul. His provision is sufficient, and it meets the needs of all those who by faith feast on him. In shocking imagery, Jesus said that those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will have eternal life. Many upon hearing these words turned back and no longer followed him. On the night he was betrayed, these startling words would have, pro- would have profound significance. In the upper room, Jesus would celebrate the Passover with his disciples. There he would break a loaf of bread as a picture of his soon-to-be-broken body. From that time on, those who know Jesus celebrate the Lord's Supper by eating the bread as a reminder of his great sacrifice. They are reminded that the true fulfillment, satisfaction, and nourishment are found by feasting on the bread from heaven broken for his followers. Such a short time after being delivered from the hands of Pharaoh's army, from being guided by a light that provided warmth, um, sustainability, and now being provided food. We find the Israelites in the toy section. They're looking at that, pr- that high-priced toy, and they're crying out because they're thirsty. The people demanded that Moses provide water to satiate their thirst. God provided Moses with instruction for how to provide the water for their needs. God told Moses to take the rod and strike a rock. From this unlikely source, God provided water to meet the people's need. The faithless Israelites were reminded that Lord would take care of them by bringing water from a rock. The rock of God continues to nourish God's people throughout all of, his, all of redemptive history. Centuries after God's miraculous provision from the rock in the wilderness, Jesus faced another group of conscientious people. This time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They asked him to show them a sign to validate his authority. Jesus, knowing their hearts, refused to entertain their demands. Rather, he took his disciples to a remote, mountainous location at Caesarea and Philippi, and gave them a vivid object lesson. He asked his followers to describe the public opinion regarding his identity. Peter, the outspoken leader of Jesus' inner circle, declared that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, these titles were not mere flattery, but demonstrated that Peter understood Jesus to be the long-awaited king in in the line of David. Jesus responded to Peter, whose name means rock, telling him that this confession would be the basis for the foundation of his church. Jesus will build his church on this truth, and nothing, not even the gates of hell, will be able to destroy his church. This rock will provide water for God's people for days without end. Jesus himself would provide streams of living water to his people in the church, to those who recognize their thirst and can come to Jesus and be satisfied. Not only that, 
but the Spirit of God will fill them with streams of living water to quench their thirst forever. In this entire trip through the wilderness, God was with them every step of the way. Every one of their needs were met. Everything that they needed to continue moving forward, he provided. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your struggles are. I don't know what things that um, you're trying to provide for yourself. But we have a means. We have a provider. And that's Christ. We don't have a scarcity of salvation. We're fully saved in Christ. We do not need to hoard up merits of favor with God for a rainy day when we happen to sin more than usual. Jesus' blood is new every morning and it purifies us daily. We don't need to go out in search of new provisions to add to what Jesus has already earned us for we, we can enter into a perpetual rest we can rest from the labor of trying to earn our salvation. We can rest in the fact that it is finished. The more we ingest this truth and taste this reality, the less that we'll thirst to fill those empty places with things of this world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we don't need to wander this world in darkness. We don't have to fear our lives at the hands of the enemy. Then we're not forced to be out here starving in this place or thirsting in this place. That you've provided us a redeemer, a messiah, a savior to provide us living water that in him all of our needs are met that in him we have relationship. We don't have a concept from a book that we're trying to follow, that we have the same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead living inside of us to guide us, to grow us, to cultivate us back to the way that you created us. For these things we're grateful. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.